Thanks for tuning in to the Hope Church Podcast. We hope that you're blessed and encouraged to walk out the gospel as you listen to this message. Um, I want to talk today, uh, we've been talking about the one thing uh, the last two or three weeks um, and just stories in the Bible where Jesus continues to draw people back to the one thing. Uh, Pastor Josh talked about Mary and Martha, how Mary chose the better thing to sit at the feet of Jesus. Um, And last week, if you weren't here, um, we talked about Matthew uh, 22. Pastor Steve, uh, our new youth pastor, who's awesome, by the way, um, is uh, talked through Matthew 22 about the great commandment. And how the one thing, the main thing, is that you would love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all your strength, and all of your mind. And it says that in Matthew 22, uh, verse 38, says this is the great and the first commandment. And so what does it take to be great? What is the first thing? What is the main thing? What is the one thing in everything going on? The one thing is to connect and love Jesus with all of your heart. And I think it's interesting is uh, we're going to get into Matthew 23 today. Uh, and so if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew 23. That's where we're going to hang out for a while. Um, and so I, uh, I like to cherry pick the good, easy, preachable sermons um, just to, you know, that's, it just makes my life easier. I did not do that this time. We're going to the Matthew 23, which is uh, a scathing rebuke of the Pharisees that Jesus gives. And so uh, I'm going to do my best today to make this an encouraging passage. Um, but, uh, you know... Everyone look to your neighbor and say, he's a really nice guy. (laughs) I am, I promise. But as I was reading and meditating and chewing on what Pastor Steve talked about last week, um, and I was reading that passage in Matthew 22, um, I just, I always, you know, if you get curious about the Bible, just get interested, interrogate the passage, and God will reveal things to you. And so I asked this question, um, who asked this question to begin with? And in verse 34, it says, it's the Pharisees that heard that, um, that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, why? To test him. So the Pharisee comes to Jesus and asks the question, what is the great commandment of the law? And so they were trying, their motives are always clear, but the Pharisees trying to test Jesus. And they're looking for a to-do list. They're looking for what's the answer? What is the one thing you're asking us to go do that is the most important commandment? And Jesus won't give them the list. He doesn't give them a task. He doesn't give them a, a, a measurable. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Well, how am I supposed to measure that? How am I supposed to know when I did it? How am I supposed to know if I've done it enough? They're looking for a to-do list, and Jesus is handing him a heart posture. So I want to talk today, this morning, um, not about the Pharisee who necessarily asked that question or the other Pharisees that we read about uh, in the New Testament. You have Nicodemus, you have Paul, who became, uh, who was a Pharisee. You have all these people who were Pharisees, but I want to talk about a different Pharisee um, that, that screams at me in Matthew 23, and it's a Pharisee that you might know too, and that's the Pharisee in me. Because if I get real and honest, I can relate to the guy who asked that question, who came to Jesus saying, what do you want me to do? You ever prayed to Jesus, God, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. You ever been in a season of decision, a season of value decision, where like, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll just do it. Just tell me what to do, God, I'll do it. And I've found he very rarely answers that question for me. Because that's not the way he wants to relate to you as a taskmaster and as an employee-boss relationship. His command and his, his, his answer back to you is the same thing that was to, hit to this Pharisee. Hey, love me with everything that you've got and love the people around you. And if you connect with me with an honest heart posture and humility, it says, I just want to love the Lord, everything will flow out of that. But I relate so much to this Pharisee of saying, God, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. 
And it comes from a good place. It comes from an honest place. But it's a place that I don't believe is really the essence of the one thing that we've been talking about here at Hope recently. The one thing is that we would connect with Jesus. We'd love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that your Bible, that the Bible is real, that it is active, it is alive. And even as we look at this passage in Matthew 23 that maybe we've skimmed over in the past that looks like, man, that... Those pesky Pharisees. I pray that we would just look at it honestly this morning and say, hey, maybe, maybe I'm in there. Maybe I'm in there. God, your word, is, it reveals you to us, God, but it also reveals us to us. Like, it, it is a mirror. And so, God, I pray that as we open your word and look at it, we would see a mirror that reflects our own heart to help us ask the tough questions, that we would, we would stray away from our religious tendencies and get on an honest quest back to the feet of you, God, that we would be people who love you with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. God, the new covenant deal is you don't write on tablets of stone, you write on the walls of our heart. So, God, I pray that you would open our hearts today, you would soften that, God, that the hand of God would come down as we look at your word, and your finger would point at our life, at our heart, and you would write your commandments in a very real, personable, loving way this morning. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. Pharisees are talked about 97 times in the Gospels. 97 times the word Pharisee is used in the four Gospels. So they are an entire subplot of the Bible. Look at Jesus' ministry. Jesus is healing the sick. He's raising the dead over this three-year period. And about every other chapter, a Pharisee pops up and asks a question. A Pharisee tries to trick him. A Pharisee says something. He mentions a Pharisee in a parable. And so if you look at it, these Pharisees are an entire subplot of the Gospels. And I would, I would say that the subplot, you know, the Bible is, it, it's, it's, it's not this historic book that applied 2,000 years ago. It's real today. And so I have to look at that in those 97 encounters with the Pharisees and say, where do I find myself in this story? How do I, how do I relate to them today? And so uh, I'm going to talk through the Pharisee and me today. And uh, the goal is that we would, we would just examine ourselves, uh, that we would look at ourselves and say, man, how has how is, how is their attitude creeped into my life? To start, I want to talk about where did Pharisees come from and who were they? Uh, so a little, uh, little history here. So um, the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders um, that they came to be in a certain period. So the intertestamental period where the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins, there's a few hundred years in there where God doesn't speak. It's just this quiet period where God isn't, doesn't seem to be speaking or doing anything. And what happens is there's wars going on, and uh, Alexander the Great, Greek culture comes in. So the Greeks over, be, become like the rulers of the area. So Judea is now under Greek control. And this whole move of Hellenism is happening in world history, where they are conquering, and then they are uh, inserting Greek culture into every land and every people that they conquer. And so the Jewish people living in Judea are now living and serving under Greek rule. And the Greek leaders are now enforcing Greek culture onto the Jewish people. They're saying, you're going to speak Greek, you're going to study in Greek schools, they're going to take over education and the marketplace and all these things. And so a foreign culture begins to emerge and begins to come in and infiltrate the people of God. Sound familiar? A quiet time when God hasn't spoken and the culture wars begin to rage. There's a group of, of... uh, Jews who begin to rise up and begin to really double down on their faith and they make a concerted effort to preserve their faith in, this, in the face of a culture war that is beginning to take over their people. And so what happens is tension is beginning to grow and grow and grow. In the year 167 BC, it's the desecration of the temple by Antiochus IV. 
So he comes in and says, I'm tired of these Jews standing up against us and trying to preserve their culture. They will become Greeks. So he comes in into the, in the Jewish temple and he sacrifices a pig at the altar of Moses in the temple, which is the ultimate desecration of the temple. And that sets off uh, the Maccabean revolt. So and I'm just talking like world history right now, but it'll all come together. So what happens is uh, there, there is a, a movement uh, where the Maccabean revolt comes in, and they actually come in and overthrow the Greeks and reestablish Judea and Jerusalem as a center of, of God's people. And so there's this huge kind of war that has happened. Um, there is a pressure from the Greeks to continue to move that way, and the Jewish leaders are still seeing their people continue to world, move further and further into the culture of the world. Again, this sounds familiar. So the Pharisees, the first time that they're actually talked about in history, Pharisee means the set-apart ones. So the Pharisees came to be in a sense where they were the ones who were committed to preserving the law. They were, permitted, they were committed to preserving the Torah. They were carrying down the traditions of people. And they were dead set on preserving and keeping Jewish culture alive in the face of Greek rule and reign. They started in a very good place. That was their goal. Their goal was to set up these principles, these laws, and these rules to ensure that people didn't stray. They set up guardrails on society to make sure that we do not become so Greek that we forget that we're Jews. And so they started in a good place. They built the tradition. And what happened over time is they, they end up becoming, by the time Jesus comes around, they end up becoming the people who are so caught up in their rules and so caught up in the law that Jesus walks in their very presence and they completely miss that he's the son of God. They have all of these systems and structures set up in order to keep their faith and help them remember that the Messiah will come. But when the Messiah is standing there face to face in front of them, they can't even see it. And so this is where the setting that Jesus comes into, and this is why in the New Testament there is this tension between the Pharisees and Jesus. And I would like to point out that the Pharisees started in a good place. Their intentions were right. Their intentions were clear. Their intentions were clean. But over time, they become the actual enemy of Jesus. And if you read the Jesus story, it's not the Romans that killed Jesus. They swung the hammers but they were pressured, pushed, and moved by the religious leaders to actually be the ones to kill Jesus. Is there a Pharisee in me that may not be swinging a hammer or wearing weird clothes to impress you? But is there a Pharisee in me that actually might be cutting me off from the one thing that Jesus talks about? Is there a religious spirit that lives inside of me that might be stopping the work of God. Is it possible that Jesus is walking and moving and the Holy Spirit is moving in my day-to-day -day life and I'm completely missing it because I'm so caught up in my traditions and my rules and the way I view God, what I would do if I were God, that he's doing something different and unexpected in my life and I'm completely missing the point because I stray too far into my own Pharisee way of thinking. You gotta ask the question, So I'm going to read the woes of Matthew 23, and we're all going to be really pumped after this. It's going to be good, but it's the Bible. The Bible's good. I'm going to cruise through these things, but it's in Matthew chapter 23. Again, he just had this conversation with the Pharisee that says, the Pharisees, well, what's the most important thing? He blows his mind by saying, you're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your mind. Next chapter, top of 23, he says this. He says to the crowds, to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat and do observe... And so do observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. 
I'm going to run through these 10 things. I'm not going to read it verse by verse. Feel free to meditate on it later when you want to feel depressed. Um, but here's 10 things that Jesus calls out specifically. Number one, they don't do what they say. His, 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 his problem with the Pharisees is they don't do what they say. Number two, they expect things of other people that they are not doing themselves. Number three, they do their, they do their deeds to be seen by others, and their motive is the praise of people. 23 verse 5, he says that. And number four, they're looking for titles from people for, as their validation. So in verse 6 through 12, he talks about the titles they want to be called by. They're obsessed with what title and what name I'm given. But they're looking for their titles and praises from people as their validation. That's where he says this famous quote, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Context, it's a famous passage, but the context is he's talking to the religious person. Number five, he says, you shut up the kingdom of heaven. Verses 13 and 14. So he says your behavior is, not, is actually stopping other people from accessing God. Number six, so you barely convert people, and, but when you do, you make them sons of hell like yourselves. Ooh. Things are getting a little tense here in this scene. But it's real. This is the words of Jesus. These were people who started the right way. They just wanted to preserve their faith. They set up rules and guidelines for themselves and others. If we stick with these guidelines in a dark and quiet season where God wasn't speaking, if I just live the right way, I know I'll come out on the other end of this thing okay. I mean, they started there. And he's saying you're making everyone a son of hell like yourself. It's sobering. It's sobering because I've gone through seasons where I haven't heard the voice of God in a long time and he feels distant and he feels far away. Maybe you're there this morning. And it's not unwise in those seasons where God feels distant to lean in and double down on the principles of godly living, knowing that you'll have guardrails that will keep you in line with his ways even when you're not actively hearing his word. It's not unwise, but this is the road they went down over 150 years. Number seven, they got caught up in the details of oaths. They were creating unnecessary complexity and measuring the wrong things, proving who was more devout. Well, you do it this way, I do it that way, and what's the most serious way to demonstrate how much we love the Lord? Number eight, they got in arguments over tithing, and they went to meticulous detail over tithing different garden herbs, but forgot about justice and mercy and faithfulness. Matthew 23, 24, he says, you blind guides, you're straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Just nitpicky over little things that aren't the main thing. Number nine, outward appearances over inner health. It says, inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You appear righteous, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And his last thing is number 10 is this, is they claimed they wouldn't have done what their ancestors did. He says, your ancestors killed the prophets that I sent you, but you sit around thinking, well, if we were there, we would have never done that. The Pharisee in me reads Matthew 23 and says the same thing. I wouldn't have done that. I'm better than that. You guys picking up what I'm putting down? Could cut the tension with a knife. (laughs) But his core issues are this. 
he's going through this whole thing and he's saying his issues in the 97 times I went through and read all of them over the last couple of weeks and just like, man, what did he say to these guys? They're there over and over and over again. And God, what is the mirror here? What are you trying to show me? Because the temptation for me as I go through those 10 things is to think about 10 people I know that represent those 10 things. Oh yeah, that reminds me of that guy. Oh yeah, that reminds me of him. Oh, he's totally like that. You guys hear it? Maybe that thought crossed your mind as I was going through the list. That reminds me of that church down the road. They're totally like that. The core issues that Jesus had with them were their motives. He continually talks about why they did what they did. You do this and it looks good, but your underlying motive is wrong. You're so obsessed with how it looks to other people. There's times where they came to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, send us a sign and we'll believe. If you do this, we'll believe. Anyone else ever said that to God? Me neither, right? <laughs> but he says you're, you're seeking a sign to justify yourself. And so we, and we can get weird about this in charismatic churches like we've got going on here where we start to believe that we're not religious at all because we believe in signs and wonders and the activity of the Holy Spirit. But there's times where we can get caught up in this stuff and we start chasing signs, right? We follow signs when Acts says that signs will follow us. There's a big difference. They asked Jesus to prove himself by doing what they wanted him to do. You ever done that? God, if you loved me, you would do this. You'd help me win Powerball. <laughs> I know none of you have ever bought a desperation Powerball ticket and prayed over it. <laughs> Who lets this guy up here? <laughs> the Pharisees valued man-made tradition as much as God-given commands. That was one of their things, is they, they took the written law of God, the Torah, and they started adding all the oral traditions on top of that. The Bible says this, but I heard my, my old pastor say this. So we're going to keep that too. The Bible says this, but, uh, you know, Gary drives a Dodge, so it's more holy to drive a Dodge. That sounds silly, but that's the type of stuff they were doing, where it's like, well, these great men were saying this and doing that, and so we begin to add all of that on top of the law. They got so out of whack because they took what God said and added all of these man-made traditions, probably good men that lived great lives, but we put their traditions on top of the law. And then it says they, they were putting burdens on people that were too heavy to bear. And they, their motive was control and position. As you read the New Testament, their motive for taking out Jesus was they were, they were afraid of losing control and position. I think it's in Luke, the account of Pilate, when he's going through and they're talking to him, convincing Rome to kill Jesus, it says that he sensed and he saw that their motive was envy. They treated people on a hierarchy of importance. And so you were more or less important depending on how good you looked on the exterior. And so I have to ask myself for these Pharisees who started just trying to live good lives in the face of culture wars, much like we're in today. They created a whole set of rules and laws and regulations that were extra-biblical on how it ought to look. And they ended up being the people who were in the crowd when Pilate is trying to get out of crucifying Jesus, saying, hey, I'll give you one last chance. Do you want Jesus back or do you want Barabbas? Give us Barabbas. They initialed and signed the death sentence of Jesus in their time, and Jesus laments over them in Matthew 24. He's looking at Jerusalem, knowing the whole thing is going to burn down in AD 70, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, you missed your time of visitation. Would it be to God that we don't miss our time of visitation? 
in 2023 at Hope Church in Springfield because we get caught up in what it ought to look like and what it would look like for God to move if I were in charge. How did they get there? How did they go from starting right to ending, ending where they ended? Very slowly. And one thing at a time. How do I drift from being the person who sits at the feet of Jesus, who's been radically transformed by his presence in my life, to the 25-plus-year Christian who shows up to church on Sundays, and I've got my whole routine of what my Christian life looks like, and it's good, and it's right, and there's nothing wrong with it. But I've lost sight of the one thing, which is an actual intimate relationship with Jesus. Because I don't think Jesus is calling you specifically to church attendance by itself or to say yes by itself or to tithe by itself. Those are all things that God will call you to do. But he's saying those should be an outflow of the one thing, the main thing, is if you spend time in my presence, if you connect spirit to spirit with the spirit of the living God in your living room, in your car, in your house, in your kitchen, on Sunday mornings, if you connect with him in a radical and real way, the only natural outflow will be what more can I give to God? Let me pay my tithe with joy. Let me be a cheerful giver. Let me serve the church with excellence because I know Jesus, it's his bride. Like the church is the bride of Christ. And if I'm going to love what Jesus loves, I'm going to start serving around here. No one paid me to say that, but we do need more help in the kids area. (laughs) It becomes an outflow. It's an outflow of love that my behavior changes. But if I focus on the behavior change before and in, 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 in addition to, or more importantly than a real connection, an intimate love for God in my heart, I will go down the very long, slow road of going from an on-fire, devout, loving Jesus Christian to a Pharisee who's living my life by a religious code, and I can miss the time of visitation in my life. The Pharisee and me, here we go. I got nine points here in 20 minutes. I always do the math in my head. I'm like, two minutes per point? You better start talking. (laughs) I'm a fast talker, so if you haven't picked it up already. The Pharisee and me, is it possible I've set up principles in my life to sustain me through the deserts of life? And am I valuing those principles more than the person of Jesus? Is it possible that God is active in my day-to-day life and I can't see it? Am I missing the time of my visitation? So I'm going to go through the Pharisee and me that I see. And maybe you relate to one or all nine of these. This is my personal therapy session. I have a sneaking suspicion you may relate. Number one, the Pharisee and me is afraid of giving up control. John 11:48 says, the Pharisee said this, if we let Jesus go on like this, everybody will believe in him. And the Romans will come and they will take away both our place and our nation. Their motive was losing their place and losing their power. They were afraid of giving up control. And Jesus is standing right there and they're like, I can't follow this because I'll lose control if I do. I can relate to that. If I can reduce my faith to predetermined set of disciplines, I can control it, I can manage it, I can keep my end of the deal and then hold God to his end of the deal. Okay, Jesus, give me your list, like the Pharisee. Show, show up at church on Sundays, you know, stop swearing so much, drive the speed limit, be nice to my coworkers. You know, whatever the thing is that's like that ticky-tack list in your brain that you're giving yourself that you think, well, if I did these things, God would love me more. Or if I did these things, then I would, I would feel justified coming into church on a Sunday. You ever had a particularly sinful week and felt like you shouldn't come to church on a Sunday? 
Me neither, right? But we do these things because we get a list going in our mind, and we say, if I can keep my list, I can then hand my list back to God, and he's going to do what I want because I did what he wanted. That's the Pharisee in me. And if you let that seed grow, the leaven of the Pharisees, it begins to grow and infiltrate, your walk with God will become very transactional. And the active fire of the living God who wants to breathe and speak with you today goes silent and cold. And all you're left with is the system of rules and regulations that you set up. Number two, the Pharisee in me blames Rome for killing my faith. I thought about moving this one towards the end because it's pretty heavy. When the, John 19, 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate says back to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. I don't see anything wrong with him. We live in such a politically tense climate, and I know it's like, oh gosh, here he goes. Landmines, I'm going to avoid him. If you vote different than me, I still love you. They politicized it. They were worried about Rome, and they missed Jesus. Are we so worried about our politics and our government that we're missing Jesus in our day? I know there's some former Jesus people in the room. That was a messed up political climate when the, the move of God in the Jesus people hippie revolution of the 60s and 70s. Vietnam, racial tensions, political stuff, Nixon, all that stuff going on. And that was the fertile breeding ground for the activity of the Holy Spirit to come in and change a generation, much of which this church exists because God talked to those people. Whoever's in the White House is not stopping Jesus from connecting with you in your house. Bottom line. But the Pharisee in me wants to blame Rome. They want to say they swung the hammer. They're killing Jesus. Well, maybe it's my religious attitude that's allowing it to happen. Politicians aren't keeping you from Jesus, and they're not stopping God from moving in 2023 in America. And it's going to get ugly next year. Cover your drinks. It's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. The Pharisee in me will blame all of that stuff for why God can't do something in my life today. Thank you. That's my dad, by the way, so... I hear that amen. Do I hear another? I see you're preaching. I'll raise you a good word, brother. Jesus came into a messed up political climate. Don't let the one we're in now stop you from connecting with him today and believing he can do a radical move of God in our country right now the way that it is. Rome may have wanted to kill Jesus, but religion beat them to it. Pass the buckets. Time to give. <laughs> Come from a business world, and there's a uh, marketing term that says, when the product is free, you're the product. Marketers in the world know what I'm talking about, but as you go into this next year, your social media account, how much do you pay for it? It's free. Your cable news network of choice, how much are you paying for that website? Free. Their job is to keep you clicking, looking, reposting, getting outraged. When a product is free, as Marketing 101, the consumer is the product. What it means by that is there's billionaires selling your attention behind the scenes. Like, oh, you, you, want, you, want, a, you want Peyton's eyes on his phone screen? Show him this headline. 
He loves it. He can't get enough of it. Gets him fired up and he keeps scrolling, coming back for more. And they're literally selling your attention to marketers, to sponsored ads, because they know what you're going to buy, because they know what people like you buy. Don't become the product in 2024. Think about that. They're selling your attention, and that should fire you up a little bit enough to shut off your, uh, your stuff. Number three, the Pharisee me loves the praises of people. John 12, 42 to 43, again, this is just me talking about me, and I appreciate you sitting on my counseling session. It's not you, it's just me. The Pharisee and me, I relate to these guys because I love the praise of people. John 12, 42 says this, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The hardest test to pass in life is not the test of failure, it is the test of success. And when things are going your way, you will hear the praises of people in your workplace, in your community. And some of you are in that right now where you're just crushing it at work. Things are going great. You're getting the promotion. You're getting the raise. And people are chanting your name in the marketplace, in the workplace because you're doing a great job. There's nothing wrong with that. You should be effective in your workplace. And if you operate on the principles of the kingdom, you will be effective in the marketplace. It's sowing and reaping, and it just plain works. Be faithful to your boss, work hard, things will end up going your way. But in that moment of success, when you start hearing people chant your name, the Pharisee in me draws myself to the chanting of what people are saying more than what God is saying. And I will allow people and culture in my workplace to have their hands so deeply engraved on my heart that there's not enough heart left for God to put his hand on. And the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit is gone because I'm so, I'm getting the dopamine fixes of the praises of other people. And it will scratch an itch. Like it, it feels good to be praised. It feels good for people to say your name and be like, man, Drew, he's killing it. It feels good. And I am prone, the Pharisee in me is to chase that more than I'm chasing the presence of God in my living room or in my car. And I will do what I got to do to keep those people happy, meanwhile neglecting the Jesus in front of me, wondering why he feels so quiet. If you put your heart in the hands of people, they'll shape you in what they need you to be. And then when they don't need you anymore, they will drop you. Some of you have also experienced that. If you put your, hands in the, if you put your heart in the hands of a faithful God, he will shape you into what he needs you to be, and he will not drop you. Number four, the Pharisee in me measures greatness outwardly. I measured on the outside. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, this is Jesus, and he says, And he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That tells a story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, just be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Famous verse here, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Again, the Pharisee in me would say, man, I'm not like that first guy, but check yourself real quick. You compare yourself to other people, and even in this place on a Sunday, man, why are they so exuberant in worship? Or, if you're exuberant in worship, why is that person not even singing over there? It's just as religious. 
The Pharisee in me judges what is seen by looks and achievements. And I really try to not be this way, but I, I have a tendency to be kind of like judgmental. And as soon as the Lord, like, I feel like I'm making progress in how I'm not judging people on the outside, I go to Walmart. <laughs> and it's like, some people are like post-COVID or like very heads down. Like, I'm just walking through my aisle, getting my items in the aisle. I'm like, no, I'm there like watching people. I'm like, I went to the grocery store and I'm there a long time because I'm like, wow. I'm like, and, and standards have lowered post-COVID. You know what I mean? Like the ratio of pajama wearers to non-pajama wearers in Walmart has definitely inverted. You guys do it too? I'm a people watcher. I just can't help it. I'm like, do you own a mirror? I'm like, anyway. Okay. But here's the thing. If I don't have grace for other people, and I only want to look at the outside and measure them and say, what are they doing? What are they thinking? What are they wearing? What are they acting like? What are they doing? If they would just do this and this and this, they would be successful like me. I don't understand why their life looks like that. I don't understand why that guy doesn't take care of his lawn three houses down from me. He must be a total slob. I judge everything by the outside, but what happens is that, that is a downward spiral because if you judge other people only by what you see, okay, let's go there. So what's God talking to you that you haven't done yet? What lack of discipline do you have in your life? Maybe someone else's outward issues are very visible because they're outward, but maybe your, maybe your core issue and your sin is actually hidden on your credit card statement and no one else can see it. If you go down that road, you'll play by the rules of the law. And in Galatians, I think it's chapter 5, uh, Paul says to the Galatians, he says, you foolish Galatians, having begun in the spirit, are you now being made just by the law? The measuring rod towards everyone else, is that what's justifying you or is the spirit doing it? 2 Corinthians 3.6 says, the letter kills, but the spirit brings life. And when I measure outward greatness by outward things that I can see, I put myself in the seat of the Pharisee. Number five, the Pharisee in me clings to good ideas more than God ideas. Matthew 15, it says, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Someone else said it. It becomes a commandment. I hold myself to it. Now I hold other people to it. What somebody said. There's a lot of smart people on social media. There's a lot of godly people on social media. That, and there's a lot of hours being spent watching Instagram reels and Facebook videos of people who are saying good things. But they're maybe not God things. But I cling to good ideas more than God ideas. In Matthew 15, Jesus is saying, you're teaching what somebody said like it's a commandment from God. The role of the scribe and the Pharisees was to write down the Old Testament over and over and over again. And they would write down to preserve the scriptures. But there's an element in me where I can write down what another man said over and over and over and over again. I can repeat, what, and, I, and I can repeat the word and meditate on it, and that'll shape my heart in a good way. But I begin to be more influenced by, by people than I am God, by smart, wise, maybe intelligent, good men that are influencing my mind. And I start regurgitating what another man said over and over and over and over again. And the scribe in me will begin to just regurgitate what another person said, but I think the presence and power of the person who sits at the feet of Jesus, the one thing 
Jesus looks at his disciples in that passage and he says, hey, who do other people say I am? Well, Gary says you're a prophet and Steve says you're, you know, you're a good man and you know, he says you're just a really good teacher. Jesus stops the conversation and what does he say to Peter? Okay, that's what they say. Who do you say Jesus is? Because you can only be an echo of another man's encounter for so many years before you lose the plot of your own faith. And God is calling for people in this generation who are not echoes of another man's encounter, but they became voices of their own encounter. What do you say? Who has he revealed himself to you this week to be? Number six, the Pharisee me prioritizes principles over the person. Jesus gives principles. Most of the New Testament is how then should we live. And it talks about marriage. It talks about money. It talks about your health. It talks about the way you should act at work, the way you should act towards your neighbor. You read the Gospels and you read the New Testament. It's like, here's what we should do. The Sermon on the Mount is like, how should you live your life? Jesus gives principles and they are good things. And if you work those principles, you will have a fruitful life. You will reap what you sow. But those principles come from the person of Jesus. But I can get so caught up in the principles that God gives that I live a very principled, godly life. And I'm reaping the benefits of a good God who does allow you to reap what you have sown. Financially, health, relationship-wise. But I can have a healthy marriage, healthy finances, a good-looking life on the outside, but I'm actually valuing the gift God has given more than the giver himself. Does that make sense? So the person of Jesus, he's saying the one thing, the most important thing is that you love me with everything that you have. And the outflow is, by the way, here's 18 things you can do to live in my kingdom and live my love. There are guidelines, there are principles that exist, but they come from a place of love. And I can live in those principles and enjoy the fruit and the benefits of a faithful God, even though I'm not actually personally connecting with him again. And again, my life will look good on the outside like a Pharisee, but I will miss the visitation of God in my life. You guys picking up what I'm putting down? Like, I think there's, like, those rules aren't karma. Well, good things happen to good people. No, it's God. Like, God sets these things in order. And I think people who don't even love the Lord and don't even know Jesus can actually live in those principles and and actually receive the benefits of them. You know what I mean? Like, I think if you're a generous person, God's blessing you. I know plenty of people who are very generous with their money that are also very wealthy that don't know Jesus. And I think they're actually living in the principle of sowing and reaping, but they have yet to find the giver of that principle yet. And when they connect this gift I'm living into the giver of the gift, wait a minute, it all starts to make sense. The Pharisees were caught up living a principled life that was good and it was godly and it was clean and it was right. But they lost point of who gave them that gift to begin with and they missed their time. Number seven, the Pharisee in me subtly sets self as a standard for excellence. The way I would have done it becomes the way everyone should do it. Now, there are, there are things that the Bible is very clear on. I'm not preaching this sloppy grace, do as you feel, like your truth, nonsense. Like the Bible is very clear. There's one way to God, it's Jesus. He's very clear about sin, repentance, the impact of sin, God's grace. These things are not up for debate. God is very clear about human sexuality. He's very clear about your behavior. He's very clear about a lot of things that are trying to be fuzzied in our culture. So I'm not talking about waffling on those things. But when we start to say the way that I would do it becomes a standard of excellence for how everyone else should do it, that's where the Pharisees got off. They took what God said and they added their own flavor and they made their flavor of how to do a thing the main thing. Does that make sense? Here's an example. 
And James 4 says, he who knows what God, what God is telling him to do but does not do it to him, it is sin. That verse bothers me because I want a list. But there will be times when the Lord's going to convict me of something he has not convicted you of. Like God might be convicting you right now to delete your Instagram account. He might be causing you to, asking you to give more than 10%. He might be asking you to do a certain thing. But the Pharisee in me will feel the presence of the Lord say, Drew, delete your Instagram account. You're wasting your mind and your time and your resources on stupid stuff. And I have two ways. The Pharisee in me will do two things. I will either ignore that, point to Gary and say, well, Gary still has Instagram, so it must be fine. And I'll leverage someone else's convictions to disobey God on my own. Or... I will actually obey that, do it, and then I'll look at Gary who hasn't deleted his Instagram account and say, Gary's a sinner because he's, I'm more holy than he is. The Pharisee will leverage the command of God to pass judgment on other people or to justify your own disobedience and say, I don't see it written here in the Bible, so it must not be for me. Does anyone else ever do this or am I alone here? There are specifics that God will call you to that are specific. And you can leverage the law and the written word to actually convince yourself you don't have to obey because you can't find the chapter and verse where God says to delete your Instagram account. I don't see it in here, so I'm not doing it. Or you'll do it and then judge other people for not doing the same. There are specifics that God has called you to that are specific. Number eight, the Pharisee me creates forms to follow. Charismatic or not, a form is a form. Passion isn't measured by outward behavior it can very much be a response, but it's never the goal. And again, in charismatic spiritual churches, we're not wearing suits and ties. If you haven't figured out, I'm not the most buttoned-up preacher you've ever listened to. But we can begin to create forms that we follow, even in spirit-filled charismatic circles that are just as religious and dead as the church down the street that we look at and say, well, they're not filled with the Spirit. They just... This forms and they do all that. You know, some of the most God-fearing, God-honoring people I know disagree with me on a lot of things theologically, but they love the Lord. And for me to look at them and judge them, I just, I'm just saying be careful. Be careful. Number nine is this, the last one, the Pharisee in me always ends in self-condemnation. If you live by the law, it's a matter of time before it starts pointing inward. Because you will add stack on stack on stack on stack of what clean living looks like. And you will become so far down this road of creating the way it ought to be that you can't meet your own standard anymore. And so the standard with which you've now judged everyone around you, in and outside of the church, you can't maintain yourself. And it's a matter of time until that turns inward. And you begin to not only condemn people around you, but you're now measuring yourself up against a stand that you can't keep yourself. And you'll end up partnering with the enemy to condemn yourself over things that Jesus is not condemning you for. Let that one sink in for a minute. If you choose to carry the burden of religion, it will crush you. It will crush you because you cannot keep up. And when you look at the outside but also know what's going on inside, You'll have these thoughts, well, if people really knew what was going on inside of me, they wouldn't love me. They wouldn't listen to me. And you feel this thing, this war going on on the inside of knowing what you ought to be, knowing what you're projecting to look like to the world around you, but knowing there's something inside you that's still not quite right. 
And because you've lived by the law, you'll die by the law. But when Jesus says, hey, I came not to destroy it, but to fulfill it, take my yoke upon you, because my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The burden of grace and the burden of Jesus is a light and easy load to carry because his grace meets you in your time of weakness. And sometimes he is not asking to put things on top of you that you may be asking to put on yourself. But if I lose the one thing, the main thing of not sitting at the feet of Jesus, I will end up in a religious world of rules and regulations that at the end of the day I can't even keep myself. And it's a matter of time before the enemy is playing you like a flute. You're messed up. You're a hypocrite. You can't even do what you said. I know no one else has ever been there, but I have. All right. So that was like heavy like time, and we were running on time. And so um, if this like spoke to you at all, can you just give me a quick like hand raise, amen, something? Okay. I feel like this is like, a, this is like I just got wrecked by this this week. I'm like, man, Lord, like draw me back to the one thing. Like I don't want to just jump through hoops and try to look good. Like there's nothing wrong with right behavior. Don't stop doing those things, but understand where they came from. They came from a God and a Jesus who loves you. So what do we do? Number one, remember that the love of God is what saved you. John three sixteen, famous verse, right? Who's he talking to? Nicodemus the Pharisee. That's who the audience is of that statement. Nicodemus the Pharisee, the one who's caught up in the religious world. It says he came to Jesus at night saying, you must be God. What do I do? And that famous verse says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Acknowledge this morning that the degree that you've got it together is only by the grace of God. It's it. It's not your good works. The grace of God is why you are where you are. Luke 7, 47, the Pharisees judging the sinful woman who's washing Jesus' feet. And he says to the Pharisee, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. He who is forgiven little loves little. He's forgiven much, loves much. Sometimes when my love for the Lord has gone cold, I just have to simply go back and look at what has he forgiven me from? And when I go through that list, as opposed to the list of things I've done right, it causes me to come back to a place to say, oh God, thank you. Thank you. Number two, God's presence becomes manifest when you show up. Show up. He's there. There's only so much and so far a relationship can go when it's still long distance. My wife and I were in a long distance relationship and we fell in love. We were like 19 years old. This is pre-internet. So we'd actually, actually talk on the phone for hours at a time. She was in Kansas. I was in Albuquerque. And every few months, one of us get on an airplane and go, go see the other one. And like, we... We would spend hours and hours and hours on the phone, but like, I, I mean, I knew her. But then when I got off the airplane, like we would look at each other, we're like, and just, we couldn't say a word. We just stared at each other like with googly eyes and hearts racing and like, oh. And it's like, we didn't know what to say for like the first hour. We just stared at each other like, we're young, dumb, and in love. And we still are, right, girl? <laughs> oh, hey. You remember those days. But we would just, it was like this, you're, you're here now. You're here. You're not this idea. You're not this voice over the phone. I'm not just listening to how your day went, and I'm not telling you how I, my day went. But then we would actually go through and walk through a day together. And we would have a shared experience of, of, of living a day together. 
instead of just telling each other how our separate days were. You'll only go so far with God at a long distance relationship. At a certain point, when you show up and when you become in person, you go from this long distance conversation to a let's go through this day together. The presence of the Lord today would come beside you and say, tomorrow morning when you wake up, say, hey, let's go through your Monday together. Don't just go through your week and then on Sunday morning during worship, think, all right, Lord, here's how my week went. How'd yours go? Together. There's an intimacy that comes when you're face-to-face with the Lord. The last thing is let the gifts draw you back to the giver. I'm a big fan of finding... I'm a people watcher, which makes me a little judgy at times. But it also makes me... um, I look at people whose lives I want to emulate in certain ways and certain things. And I've learned a lot in life by just talking to people who are 5, 10, 15, 20 years older than me that are just a little bit further down the road where I'm like, how did you do that? One of those people is my next door neighbor. Um, Brad happens to be in the room. But there's examples about Brad's life that I want to be like. And I look at Brad's life and there's, there's one dynamic that I want to bring up here. And he has, Brad has two kids. He has two daughters that both grew up. They both love the Lord. They both married great men of God. They are both hardworking. They are both like just having amazing careers and lives. They're having, they're raising godly kids. They're doing so much that is so good that if I'm Brad, I am so proud of my kids because of, I can look at the way they're living and I can look back and I'm sure at some point you're saying, we must have done something right as parents because my kids are doing so great. But the thing that I admire most about Brad is not that his kids are doing great. You know, I go out like a normal neighbor and checking the mail, doing the thing, but the thing that I admire most about Brad, because I got two kids, they're younger than his, but is how often I go outside and I see one of his kids' cars in his driveway. They're adults, they're busy, they got busy lives. But it's at least once or twice a week I see one of his kids' cars in his driveway hanging out with dad. Yeah, stand with me, we'll, we'll close this out. I imagine that Brad would trade all of his kids' accomplishments. He would trade in their careers, he would trade in their paychecks, he would trade in the schools and the degrees that they got for the sake that they come home once or twice a week and still come back to dad's house to hang out. Most of you people who are empty nesters or parents who got grandkids, you know what I'm talking about. That phone call rings and it's your kid. It's like that, that connection is what matters. So if I can challenge you with something today, there's a father who loves you. And you may have built a great career. You may have a great marriage. You have made great kids. You might be involved in the church. You might be tithing, giving, doing all those things. Don't stop. Do those things. But I think we talk about the one thing, and I think about the Pharisee and me, I can get so caught up in those things that I forget to drive my car back to my dad's house and see the car in the driveway where I'm in the house sitting and dwelling with my father. Can I challenge you to take the car and go back to your dad's house this week? Say, wait a minute, all the stuff I'm doing, I don't want to lose the one thing of connecting with Jesus in a real meaningful way.